Hey everyone, this is Cy Huffer here, back with our session six on how to study the Bible. This is our Christian education podcast on hermeneutics, and I'm here with our t- one of our teaching ministers. Hey everybody, Mark Scott here, glad to be back with you. And I just want to review kind of where we've been thus far in this study. We start off with just defining what is hermeneutics. It's the science of interpretation. It's learning how to interpret messages one to another. We've also talked about where the Bible came from, how we got it. And then we've nailed down, really, uh, three principles of interpretation thus far. First one being, always interpret Scripture in light of the context. Context is king, is what we said. Secondly, we said, always interpret in line of the meanings of words. What do these words mean by this author uh, and throughout Scripture and, and, and today? Thirdly, was always interpret in light of parallel passages. That was the last session last week that all truth in God is God's truth. And, and all you know, you interpret Scripture by Scripture, allow clear text to explain obscure text and so forth and so on. So, Mark, what are we up for today in this podcast? Yeah, this is a big one. It is the one called historical background. And just stated succinctly, the principle is always interpret in light of historical background. I get it. That, that makes sense to me. The, I remember in my old uh, principles of interp class, we talked about our town and their town. And yeah. there's a big hermeneutical bridge between the two. The town I live in, the worldview, the culture is different than the worldview of their culture. And so I need to understand their culture to understand what they're talking about. Talk to me about the specific elements yeah. of historical background. You're exactly right, Cy. Somebody said, what do a bunch of camel drivers have to do with me in the jet age? <laughs> that world... The biblical world, the ancient world, is certainly different than ours. And four elements basically are part of that. What is time? I mean, here we are, you know, in, uh, you know, where we are in 2019. Uh, that's, uh, you know, way back. The original earliest parts of the Bible would be at least somewhere around 2000 BC. Hmm. And those are conservative dates. So time is part of it. Geography is part of it. Uh, the Middle East is a different world than the Western world. Culture is part of it, the practices of people, their belief systems, things like that, and language. Mm. Uh, The Bible basically takes place with three languages, two of them being primary, Hebrew, Aramaic, those are Semitic languages, Middle Eastern languages, and then Greek, which is a Western language. So, yeah, there's this big gap. You mentioned about our town, their town. Uh, A person in our heritage, Cy, Alexander Campbell, some of our listeners might know that name and others might not. It's okay. He talked about hermeneutical distance. Hmm. Hermeneutical distance. He just meant that the world of the Bible and the world of us are not the same. Can we bridge those two worlds? Well, it looks like, as you kind of parse this historical background concept out, that there are several things to overcome. Let's start with, instead of the what or the how, let's start with the why. Why does this matter so much? Yeah, let me state five reasons why I think it matters. And the first, you kind of have to think through, but it would be stated this way. Because meantness precedes means. I'll say it again. Meantness, what the text meant to its original readers, that precedes means. It's just wrong-headed to say, after reading a Bible verse, well, for me, this means this. And if you read it a certain way, and that's not in any way, shape, or form what the original readers would have read, then probably something's off, and my hunch is it's not the original readers. Hmm. So meantness precedes means. Historical background forces me to read that way. Number two, the Bible's a historical document. I don't know that it tries to prove history. It just assumes history. 
The greatest story ever told starts off this way. In those days, they went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. The Bible's not trying to prove that Caesar Augustus lived or Quirinius was governor of Syria. They're just assuming those guys were real. Mm -hmm. So the Bible assumes a historical background. Thirdly, I think when we pay attention to this principle, it really helps you appreciate the Bible and Bible characters more. The Bible characters kind of leap off the page. They come to life when you realize, wow, that was a custom back then. I didn't know that. Number four, it might give us clues to application, particularly what issues of the passage are culturally bound yeah. and which ones are universally enjoined. Uh, when Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, does a handshake work for that? You know, what's cultural, what's his, uh, universal? And then finally, I think we'd all agree that what God really wants to do is transform our culture, yeah. both then and now. And we see in the biblical world, the early Christians transforming their culture. And uh, we would want to do the same today. So that's why history matters. That's so good. And, you know, as I have even pursued uh, Bible study and becoming a student of Scripture, um, I know, I'll never forget the 4,000-page backgrounds readings course that we did together, <laughs> yeah, Mark. Yes, we did. Reading all the intertestamental liter literature. And that made the Bible come alive to me in so many different ways. Um, and I actually became obsessed with it for a little while. And I just want to ask you this question. Can we overdo this? Are there any cautions that you have about this principle? Well, yes, I think so. Um, I do have at least a few cautions that I'd like to raise. And so let me number these. There are four of them. The biggest caution that I have is that we not make the historical background the foreground of the interpretive process. This happens lots. Bible commentators are specialists in this regard. Hmm. we got to be careful. Knowing that for a Jewish man, for instance, to run in public, like in Luke 15, when the prodigal son's father girds up his loins, runs to his son, for a Middle Eastern man to expose his ankles was very undignified. And that is something we know from history. But I don't think that's the point of the story of the prodigal son, that the father in the story became a little undignified. It might help serve the point, but it's not the main point of a God mm -hmm. who's a prodigal himself who wants to lavish on those that will repent and come home. So don't make the background the foreground. Number two, admit we just can't reconstruct everything. Yeah. It was a long time ago. We live in the gen age with computers. We're just not going to be successful. Now, there are scholars that are tremendous with, with uh, antiquity studies. Our own Shane Wood here at the church, he's really an expert on Roman history. I, I bow to his knowledge in that regard. That can help us. But the bottom line is, none of us were there. Yeah. We would like to have been a fly on the wall, but none of us were there. We really don't know why the Bible writers said what they said at times. Like, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. That's from the Old Testament. What's that mean? And let a woman keep silent in the church. Well, how do we understand that today? So, again, um, we probably won't be able to understand everything historically. Uh, a third thing would be, it's easy to get prejudiced in this area. We can think that if we learn some historical background, ooh, wow, we know a lot. So we'll re our, But our research might be limited. We might think we have an accurate view when really we don't. Yeah. It's a very limited view. A good example of this would be the role of women in the ancient world. A lot of people will argue that women were very oppressed, treated like property, etc. I think you could certainly find evidence of that. No question about it. Especially the Jewish rabbis. They seem to be quite chauvinistic. But actually, in Roman law, 
some women were held in high esteem. Hmm. And even the gospel, book of Acts says that many prominent women became believers. So you just got to make sure that your historical background research is sufficient. Fourthly, sometimes at the end of the day, all we can say is, well, that's interesting. I want to reverse Please. real quick on what you just did. Okay. And that was the role of women. You had historical context as questions uh, about, you know, it's, but what you just did was you used parallel passages yeah. to help clarify historical background. Yeah. So you say, in one area it looks like women are oppressed, property, but then you used a parallel passage to help you actually yep. understand another area that's not necessarily yeah. true. Which just shows how interwoven that's right. these principles of interpretation are. You really can't just do one without the that's other. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's four, good. Four. And a fourth thing I'd say is sometimes all we can say is just that's interesting. <laughs> For lots of people, it, it just... That's all we can say. Um, sometimes when people hear us teach from the Bible or do lessons or home group studies or whatever, it might sound like we're just making a walk through a museum. Uh, sometimes we Christians, I'm afraid, love the study of the Bible and are more comfortable living in that world than we are living in this world. I'll, be, I'll confess my own uh, guilt there. That sometimes I don't know what to do with all of our modern day things. Sometimes our moral uh, compass has been outdistanced by our scientific discoveries. Mm. And it makes me uncomfortable. I'm more comfortable in the biblical world at times than I am in the modern world. And, and that's a danger because we've got to bridge the gap. Hopefully historical background helps us do that and doesn't derail us from doing that. That's good. So, there's, so there are some cautions with this yeah. concept and this principle of interpretation, historical background. So, how, But let's talk about the how. How do I find out this stuff? I remember going to Mark Moore uh, when I was in high school, and he was a preacher at a CIY conference, and I said, hey, is there a book that has all this historical information that you keep bringing to all your lessons? And he said, no, there's not one. There's about... There are thousands that I've been reading for forever, and that was really discouraging to me then. But it makes sense now. And so I don't have an office in the Ozark Library. If all I have is my Bible, and if it doesn't give the background, how do I acquire this information? Well, every good uh, Christian student of Scripture will probably want to have some tools. Hmm. But let me just start with the Bible. Since you said, what if all I got is my Bible? What about that? Because I think you can actually learn some historical background from the Bible itself. Think that the Bible was written over 1,500 years by at least 40 different writers, probably more than that. And so customs change in 1,500 years. You're going to learn some things in one text that will be different than another. In the Old Testament, you know, Tamar puts on veils of prostitution and seduces her father-in-law. In the New Testament, Paul says to the Corinthian church, hey, ladies, if you're going to pray or prophesy, put your veil on. Well, that just means that a veil in the Old Testament was a sign of prostitution. A veil in the New Testament was a sign of evidently holiness and piety and respect for the occasion. So first of all, I'd say this. One way to learn a historical background and use the principle in your Bible study is what we might call internally. Internally. That just means you get familiar with your Bible and you start reading, I want to use this word, appropriately between the lines. It's kind of like, Cy, listening to one end of a phone conversation. Mm -hmm. So if the phone rings and I say, hello, yeah, well, I suppose I can. I got to get my eyes checked first and then I got an appointment at the school at four. You want me to stop by Brahms? How much you want? One gallon? Is that okay? All right. I'll be home later. See ya. Love you. Now, Cy, interpret what I just did. Who am I talking to? What's it about? Go ahead. 
Yeah, you're talking to, it sounds like, probably your spouse, because you said, I love you at it the end. It better be my spouse. It better be your spouse. You're stopping and getting a gallon, probably, of milk yep. at Brahms yep. on the way to the school and before you get home. And you better remember that milk. That's right. <laughs> no, that's exactly it. What I'm saying is, we're listening yeah. as we're reading. We're reading the Bible with our ears. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, we, we can think about the book of Philemon, since it's short. Paul writes this guy named Philemon in the church of Colossae. And he says to Philemon, hey, I'm sending back your runaway slave. I want you to receive him back because he's become a Christian. Now, there may be a lot about slavery in the ancient world that we don't have a clue about. But we can start piecing together. Oh, Philemon must be a Christian. Oh, Onesimus must have run away from him. Oh, Onesimus, I guess, became a Christian once he got to Rome and found Paul. And now he's saying, you know, we could start piecing together some things about slavery in the ancient world that we might not have otherwise known. That's what I call doing it internally. But of course, you mentioned libraries and books and things. And yeah, there are some external tools that just help us. Good commentaries do this sometimes. Two books that I found at least elementary helpful is are the two IVP Bible background commentaries. There's one on the Old Testament. There's one on the New Testament. And just having those two volumes kind of helps me know what else I need to go study, if nothing else. And this year, Sai, for my devotions, I'm reading through the archaeological Bible. It's the NIV text, but I'm just, it's got all the archaeology associated with anything in that passage. So it's pretty voluminous, you know, it's big, but uh, I do seven pages a day, and it's pretty fine print. But it's really helping me with the historical stuff. So those notes are incredible, very fair, very accurate. Those would be external sources. That's that's great. That's so helpful. And a good study Bible, study Bible like the Archaeology Bible is, is a great tool as well. Those IDP Bible background commentaries, I've had those for years. That's where I began studying my historical background. Super helpful. Um, other, other helps, other tools, other resources of how we can find our way to these nuggets of background to enrich our Bible study. Yeah. What would you mention? And I don't know if these are principles so much, Sai, practices, whatever they are. But again, like we said in another lesson, strive for mentness. Yeah. Strive for mentness. Can a text mean what it never meant? If we make room for things like predictive prophecy or typology, which we haven't talked about much, that's a person, thing, or event in the Old Testament that predicts something being fulfilled in the New progressive revelation, the Bible's unfolding story. I just think that's what you start with. You just start with that presupposition. I'm going to ask, what would the original readers have thought? And that just helps me listen in for historical background. Second, just asking good normal questions. You know, our good little interrogative friends. Mm -hmm. Who, what, when, where, why, how. No substitute for that. And that's also a great place to start your Bible study. It is. It is. Because it's that stage we call observation. That's right. Observation has to precede interpretation, which needs to precede application. Another one would be, try to drain the passage you're reading of the images that the original recipients would have known. We might not know much about Melchizedek in Hebrews 7, but the people that the Hebrew writer was writing to knew about Melchizedek from the Old Testament. What about the snake on the pole in John 3? What about Elijah, John the Baptist coming in the power and the the spirit of Elijah in Luke 1? What about the beast in Revelation 13? You know, this beast that comes out of the sea. That may be totally foreign to us, but to the people that he's writing to, they had an idea. Or the vineyard 
any good Jew would have understood that vineyard was a reference to God's people. So you start learning these metaphors and these images in the Bible, and that looks, helps you look for historical background. Also, I'd say, try to trace back things to the Old Testament more than just any historical period. Yeah, there were some things that happened that are pretty significant in the 400 years between Malachi and the Gospels. True. And yet, um, it's probably better to pay attention to the Old Testament because some of the stuff that developed in the intertestamental period wasn't all good yep. for God's people. So be careful. And real, uh, real quick on Surely. that, with the Old Testament being elevated, all I can hear is my Revelation professor, our teaching minister, Shane yeah, Woods, saying the reason we don't know Revelation— yep. Is because we don't know we don't know our Old Testaments. Yeah. I would confess to being Old Testament stupid myself. Yes, and yeah. so more I ground myself in it, the more I see it too as one ongoing, continuous That's story. Right. Yep. Well, I think another thing we can do is just pay attention to ancient sources and historians. And some of our listeners, some of these names might seem crazy, but some of them actually probably been exposed to them in philosophy class at the university, mm. something like that. Josephus, the Jewish historian, Tacitus, Suetonius, Plutarch, their Roman writers, uh, Pliny, uh, Seneca, Philo. Those are names that probably are in the back of the brain for people. But anything you can get your hands on by those original writers usually helps. Sometimes even reading church fathers, yeah. the early church fathers, the other early people that defended the faith, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Polycarp. Those are names that probably people have heard in church one time or another. And that just gets us closer to the time and the culture. They're not always right. Yeah. They're not always right, but we can pay attention to them. As well as just covenant. Mm -hmm. Remember, reminding ourselves that there's the Mosaic covenant. And there's the Abrahamic covenant and Noah covenant and Christian covenant. You know, they're different covenants. And this, the times really when this matter are things like Sabbath, salvation, yeah. especially as it relates to the thief on the cross. I often hear people talk about the thief on the cross. You know, what kind of opportunity did he have to respond? Well, he was talking to Jesus and Jesus was right there. I guess that's pretty good. But tithing, keeping the law, things like that. You got you to gotta remind yourself that covenant is part of the discussion here. That's good. One one author and book that I've gone back to again, 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 because a lot of this is 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 primary literature. You're talking about yes. Clement of Rome, Ignatius, yeah. Polycarp, and you can definitely take that route. And what I would tell you that is mining for gold. That you will yeah. sift through pages and pages and pages and pages of resources, and you'll find gold nuggets here and there. But really, what you're doing is you're learning how to swim in that culture. Um, yeah. But one author that kind of helps you a little bit is Everett Ferguson, his book, yes. Backgrounds of Early Christianity. Yeah. I would highly recommend that book if you're yep. a serious Bible student and you want to dive in. That's a really good place to start on historical background. So anything else, Mark, that you would want to say as we kind of conclude our time here on historical background? Well, I do. I want to go back to what you said about uh, resources and tools, because a lot of our listeners that maybe didn't have a Bible college education but had, you know, university or other college work, they would be familiar with the great books of the Western world. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, those are gold mines. Mm. To read what Cicero wrote, mm -hmm. or, you know, um, just all kinds of Greek writers, Roman writers, uh, sometimes they supply an awful lot of information for us. Uh, and also, I think any Christian probably wants to read some things by Josephus. He's one of our few sources that we have. He is prone to exaggeration and some other faults, but... He will help. So that's just a, a kind of a footnote on our discussion about reading kind of outside the Bible. I think there are a couple last things I'd like to say, Sai, and that is uh, two things that it, that 
considering historical background that will make us appreciate our Bibles. One is how historically accurate our Bibles are. Mm-hmm. I mentioned about reading the archaeological Bible this year in my devotions. Again and again and again, almost, almost on every other page, when they do a little excursus on something historical or something archaeological, even if it never mentions Israel or the church or God's people, it'll say, well, this emperor did this. And we see that from his life, he was prone to do these things, which matches up exactly with what Scripture teaches. Hmm. And as somebody has said, with every turn of the archaeological spade, the Bible just again and again keeps coming up accurate. The incredible description of the shipwreck in Acts 27. There's nothing quite like that in the ancient world, as accurate as Luke put it. Hmm. No wonder it's one of the we sections because he was there, Mm -hmm. part of it. So I think doing the historical background research in your Bible study helps you just appreciate your Bible more. This is an accurate piece. Secondly, um, how authentic it is in often pushing back against the culture of its day. Mm-hmm. The Bible itself was countercultural. Uh, that culture, like ours, was fallen. It's not totally redeemed yet by Jesus. So why would we be surprised if Jesus said something sort of anti-cultural to his day? God's goal is bigger than just swimming with culture or coming alongside of culture. We don't want to just dismiss it and say, oh, well, you know, Jesus said that because he was part of his culture. Actually, he said a whole bunch of stuff that was anti his culture. And so the goal is, the fact is that the Bible does not always fit its history. It it is an indication of its authenticity. It's it's countercultural at times. That's good. I I would, let me me kind of summarize this session together with this just one last thought. Always interpret in light of historical background. And here's why. The book, the books of the Bible, the passages of Scripture are not an encyclopedia. They're not the, they were not something written in ivory towers uh, for, for a publishing company. These were documents written, written to people who are alive, who are struggling, who are hurting, who are in need, who lived in a culture with a worldview, with customs and traditions, that when we understand better the world which, which they were living in and the purpose for each book, we really understand the author's intent and what they're trying to say then and what it means for us today. So true. Nothing to add to that. That's right. So thank you all. We'll see you next time here on How to Study the Bible. Catch you later.